Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Natasha Solomons is the author of Mr. Rosenblum's List, which was published in Australia in April 2010. It's her first novel and is based partly on her grandparents' story of leaving Germany and settling in England before World War II. The novel has been very well received and is already published in nine languages. Natasha is currently working on the screen adaptation with her husband, fellow screenwriter David Solomons. She's also working on a PhD on 18th century poetry. So thanks for joining us today, Natasha. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, tell us, when did you first decide that you wanted to become a writer? I think I've always wanted to write. Um, I'm just obsessed with stories, um, whatever those stories are, whether it's just an anecdote over dinner, reading a story, listening to a story on, on tape during a car journey. And I can't imagine doing anything else. And you've you've had great success with your first um, effort, well, your first published effort, um, Mr. Rosenblum's List, which is now published in nine languages, I understand. Has, has it been a surprise? Um, totally, completely overwhelming. I mean, for the, the longest time, I was just, just I, I live in the countryside and I'm, I'm married to another writer and sort of trudging through the fields going, oh, you know, on anyone other than, than my husband and my mum, like what I've written. So um, it's just, it is, it's completely amazing. So did you set aside time to do this? Did you have a day job? What, what, how did you actually get the book out? Um, well, I'm, trying to finish a PhD in 18th century poetry mm. and um, I was working on my PhD and I've always wanted to write fiction so in between sort of sticky chapters of the PhD I was writing writing bits of my novel sort of here and there whenever I could and also sort of co-writing screenplays with my husband so sort of juggling different different forms of writing. Mm. Poetry is very different to writing a novel. <laughs> yes, well, I don't write poetry. I My, my PhD is, sort of, I, I read sort of 18th century right. poetry and sort of unpack it. And I actually find it really, really useful for writing is sort of just to, to read other writers sort of who are better than you. And I find that just the best of training and really helpful. Have you always been attracted to historical fiction? Um, the fiction that I study is... It's 18th century, so at the time it was it was contemporary. But then I sort of spent so much of my time to, with the PhD living in the past. Mm-hmm. And yes, um, I think that most things I'm drawn to are are historical, whether it's just recent history or, or or further back. I've never actually wanted to write sort of 18th century fiction or fiction sort of set in the 18th or 19th century. I think because I, I spend so much time there, I, I think I'd get um, completely distracted by the by, by the minutia. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand you've drawn a lot from your grandparents' experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And 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 
as a bit of a backdrop for those um, listeners who haven't read your book yet, tell us a little bit more about Mr. Rosenblum's list. Um, well, the, the, the story is broadly inspired by my grandparents who were refugees from Berlin. And in the 1930s, to escape Hitler, they came across to the UK. And after the war, my grandparents used restitution money, actually, from Germany to buy a cottage in rural Dorset because they wanted their children and grandchildren to grow up knowing big fields and big sky and not just the city life. And I was always quite intrigued by that journey from sort of bohemian Berlin mm. to the, sort of the, the quiet rural countryside of Dorset, especially as it must have been after the war. It must really have been another world. And that's sort of formed the, the, the sort of initial inspiration for, for the novel. And the other sort of fact that also inspired the book is that when refugees newly arrived in Britain in the 30s, they were given a list, a pamphlet, called Helpful Advice and Friendly Guidance for the Refugee, mm. explaining to them how to seem English. <laughs> so everything from spend your time immediately in learning the correct pronunciation to the English language to never speak German in public or in public conveyances. Mm-hmm. And these, these, there's sort of several items on this list. And in my novel, Jack Rosenblum, becomes obsessed with these items that he thinks that if only he can fulfill them all, he will become a perfect Englishman and he'll finally belong. He'll be home despite being in exile. Mm -hmm. But when the few items on the list aren't enough, he starts to expand it to rather gargantuan proportions Mm. and includes other items such as an Englishman must get his marmalade from Fortnum and Mason. (laughs) And the final item on his list is every Englishman must be a member of a golf club. <laughs> and this, this proved to be trickier than he'd imagined and leads him a sort of quixotic adventure into the heart of the English countryside. And uh, do you know if your grandfather adhered to such a list? Um, he would have been given the list because all refugees were when he arrived. And I think he must have told me about it. Mm. But... I, I never saw his copy of the list. My mother wonders if perhaps she had, but we we sort of, we don't know. Um, but he, he certainly would have been given one. Um, now you're already working on the screenplay for Mr. Rosenblum's yes. list. Now, um, has that been optioned by a film company, or have you decided to to write a screenplay? Because that's no, what it's... you you know you you do with your husband. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. No, it has been, um, it's been optioned um, by Film 4, who made Slumdog Millionaire, mm-hmm. and Cowboy, who made Last King of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And they've both optioned the novel and they've commissioned David um, and I to, to write a screenplay um, of, of the book. So I think when we get back to the UK, we'll be starting that almost straight away. It's really exciting. You mentioned that you do write screenplays with your husband. It must yeah. be a very different, very different writing process. Do you have to, um, you know, sort of change your mindset to be able to write in a certain way with that than writing a novel? Yeah, no, it is different. I really enjoy both. I think that 
because our, our, our view of adaptation is really that it's a creative work of art in its own right. And it's not like, certainly, I mean, this is different because it's adapting my own novel. Mm. But still, I think the important thing is is not to feel sort of too precious about it. It's not like kind of if the movie gets made, they'll be recalling all the books and, and, and pulping them. The book's <laughs> still going to be there. Mm. And we just need to allow the screenplay to be what it needs to be. And some scenes that work really well in a novel, because the pleasure of a novel is just being inside a character's mind, just they become sort of on screen you're not sure what you're looking at mm. so you've got to find a way of sort of externalizing those or sometimes even coming up with a new scene that hopefully does a similar sort of thing but it's but you're seeing more on screen rather than just being being described and what's it like working with your husband and how do you resolve creative differences <laughs> I mean I know I would find it very difficult um we just we really enjoy working together and it's certainly it's lively usually when we start the process it's all sort of very polite and we we work together but at the same laptop writing every word, word together and we take it in turns to type and the first day I said if you know darling you type first you type first no darling please <laughs> and by the end it's all sharp elbows <laughs> but I think it's really useful because we interrogate everything and those just moments, those just that we were just talking writing about, sort of killing your darling. Mm. The, the darlings don't survive. They don't survive till lunch when there's the two of you, right. because we're absolutely brutal. Mm. So in some ways, I think it's a really sort of vigorous process, and it, it's really satisfying. And whenever you write, you get so obsessed with what you're working on. Um, just really to the exclusion of everything else. Mm. But when you can work on that with with your partner it's amazing because it's, it's really like our brains are networked and it's just so much fun mm. now tell us how long did it take what was the sort of gestation period when you thought oh you know I might write this story about about this list and when you finally finished and obviously you had your PhD in the middle of that so <laughs> how long was that period I find it really hard to say because I only I don't think I wrote Mr. Rosenbloom for more than six weeks at any time. Mm. And I I find that when I write it does it's so intense and um sort of all consuming that I can really only write in sort of in bursts because I don't I don't sleep very much when I'm writing. I'm really interested in nothing else mm. and I enjoy the kind of the, the self absorption, but then I need to come out of it afterwards. So I think I probably worked on it on and off for a couple of years, mm. but I probably only wrote it for, I don't know, maybe 10 months. Mm, mm. And the second novel, because I've sort of been exclusively sort of working on that in times, sort of the first draft I worked on really intensely and took me six months. Right. And tell us about the the road to publication for the first novel. You know, you wrote you wrote it and then what did you do? <laughs> um, well, I suppose the lucky thing for me is because I'm, I'm married to another writer, just, I did various drafts showing each of them to him mm. and he, much like an editor would, would sort of give me notes telling me things he liked, the things that he thought could be better, suggestions of how I might consider making them better. And so I think I probably did at least three or four drafts mm. before um, we sort of decided that, yes, maybe it was a good time now to go and start looking for an agent. Mm. And then I wrote letters to a few agents. And then um, it took a while. I think it took sort of eight or nine months, maybe a little longer, until sort of 
an agent came back saying, yes, you know, I've read it, I really like it, I want to represent you. And then as soon as sort of one agent said that, suddenly there were lots interested. Right. And then it was really exciting. I kind of met, I met the two I liked the best and then decided who, who, who I thought I could really work with. Right. And what was it like in that eight or nine months, you know, not knowing whether it was going um, to happen or not? I mean, you just because you just don't know, and so people are coming back to you in the meantime. I mean, I have to say, everyone was really, really lovely and um, really encouraging. I mean, obviously, people, they're incredibly busy. Mm. I think um, the agent I eventually signed with, I think he said he had two thousand manuscript submissions that year. So they are so swamped. It's, I mean, it is really difficult. But it's, I was getting some letters back from people saying, "Just love your writing. Really love your style." Mm. But you've written a really quirky story about a middle-aged man and you're a young woman. We can't sell this to a publisher. No woman's going to read this. What? <laughs> so I had I had a few, and you don't know anything, you know, so you think, well, okay, maybe they're right. Maybe I've, I've, made, a big, I've made a mistake. Mm. And I had a couple of agents saying to me, just like, can you write something else with a woman in the lead? Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, I probably could, but... I'd like to see what happens with this first. Mm. Um, so, so tell us a bit about your second novel. Well, um, it's also set in Dorset, but this time by the sea. And it's a novel, really, it's set during the last days of uh, the English country house. And my heroine is Elise Landau, who's the least talented member of this rather glittering family and the novel starts in Vienna she's she's Austrian and the Germans have invaded Austria and her family have to get out and her mother's an opera singer and her father's a novelist and her sister's a viola player and they all have just rather wonderful opportunities in America but Elise has no special talents and the only way she can escape is as a domestic servant in an English country house. So she swaps this life of sort of opera balls and champagne mm. for being an under-housemaid in this rather dilapidated manner on the coast of England. And how did this come into your head? Um, I think this was inspired in a way by a, by a family story that I've sort of grown up knowing about um, my grandmother and her sisters that my grandmother, Margot, and her sisters came to Britain in the late 30s, before the war. But only two of them stayed in the UK. One of them then went to America and sailed before the, the war for New York. And what the sisters were really close, they they didn't meet again during the, the course of um, 30 years. And then finally, after all that time, They've been sort of writing and talking on the phone every week. Um, Gerda got the boat back to the UK and the other two went to meet her at the dock and they couldn't believe it. She wasn't on the boat. They couldn't believe that after all this time she'd missed it. And then they realised that actually she was there, that they'd been looking for a girl and of course she was a woman right. with white hair. Mm, mm. And the sadness of that for the family that family story that has grown up hearing to the forever just intrigued me and I sort of wanted to unpack that a bit and mm. see what was behind it. Mm. So when you are writing, t 
tell us, do you have a, a writing routine or do you have, you know, do you have to do your research first into that era and then write or do you just write and then fill in the gaps later? How do you, what's the process for you? Um, my, my process, I'd say, is, is sort, of, sort of chaos, right? <laughs> I, I, I do it all at once, but there's the beginning of this, I, I have to feel confident enough that I know where to start and I can see a few of the waypoints and I've got a really basic skeleton. Mm. So before writing the second novel, for instance, I did um, quite a lot of reading of accounts of women who had been domestic servants in Britain, um, so Jewish women who'd been servants during the war. And I try to read non-fiction at that point rather than fiction because I think I, I, I find it easier, I think. Mm-hmm. So I worry about getting distracted by another writer's voice. Mm. So, and also some memoirs, so I sort of start with that, and then I start to write. Um, but then I'm sort of reading continually as I go, so mainly non-fiction, but then for instance, the second novel is also, um, it has a lot to pay homage to the um, the 30s novel. So I've been reading lots of 30s novels mm-hmm. whilst I've been writing, and it really helps me sort of tune my ear into the rights of the, the tinkle of the dialogue. Mm. And what about the day-to-day? Do you, you know, set a target of a certain number of words or or yeah. what happens? I do. I, I, I tend to write when I'm, I mean, when I'm in a writing phase rather than sometimes I, I'm, I'm sort of reading or researching for a few weeks in the middle rather than writing. But if I'm writing, I try and, I try, I'm, I, I really hate mornings. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> um, but I try and be at my desk sort of, sort of 10-ish and then, I do. I have a word count. I find that if I go much above the word count, so say if in a day I write 3,000 words, mm. um, usually I find I'm so exhausted the next day I get very little done. Mm. So it all averages out. But I find that if I'm writing fewer than seven or 8,000 words a week, I feel that the novel's not moving forward and I can't quite see it. Mm. I like to feel that the words are building up. Even if I know I've got to go back and do a lot of rewriting, I like to feel that I can sort of see that the, the story's got forward motion and I'm sort of progressing. Do you plot it out first or do you just see what happens? I plot it out with the sort of in that I've got waypoints, the sort of key moments that I can see and scenes that sometimes I've sketched really roughly that I'm working towards. But I also need to leave room to be excited. I don't like to have it so rigorously planned that I don't have room to be surprised because I think then there's a risk of getting bored Mm. because the novel I mean it is the cliche but it is a marathon Mm. and I I need room to be really surprised and excited and enjoy the adventure along the way. Do you um, are you surprised by the ending or do you know the ending? I usually know the ending but then it always needs changing and shaping and then there's always another few elements that come into it mm. so whilst I, I do know and I usually know um, some of the, the the climaxes along the way or the but there are certain there's the big sections that I do have I, I, I know but then I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get there. Mm. Now you spoke at the Sydney Writers Festival and in your session you mentioned that you're dyslexic is yeah. is that difficult to overcome when you're writing? Did it ever make you make make you doubt whether you wanted to become a writer at a younger age? It never made me doubt that it was what I wanted to do, mm. but I think it certainly made it seem sort of 
at times whether it was I mean it's always hard mm. but whether it was going to be impossible and there are certain things that I really struggle with and I, I, I still really struggle with, with spelling and grammar and I just have to work really really hard and it was funny I think there was a point where I'd done a couple of drafts of Mr. Rosenbloom and just uh, realized that it was actually it was so error strewn that really no one could read it the, the manuscript wasn't in the form that sort of an agent or an editor could look at and so I went online and did an online grammar course wow and just quite obsessively learned how to use a comma I think it was just sheer sort of bloody-minded determination that I just didn't want anything to stop me. Mm, mm. So what are your next projects? Tell us what's coming up. Well, I'm working on the screenplay yes. with David, Mr. Rosenbloom, and also I'm, I've finished the first draft of the second novel, mm-hmm. and um, when I get back to the UK, I'll be working on the edits for, for that as well. Is the third one in your head? No, at the moment, I'm really focusing on the second. I just need to really pour everything. I usually find that sort of the, the ideas for, for the, the next project start, I start to think about those as the the one that I'm working on sort of is, is approaching completion. But I'm not quite there yet. I need still, I think, to put, put all my energy into, into the things I'm working on at the moment. Now, the version of your book that is in Australia anyway is just beautiful the actual cover you know the 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 work it's a work of art it's just gorgeous it's something you want to have (laughs) just to have (laughs) how much input do you have into that sort of thing I mean I didn't really I I was kept very involved in the process but my editor Jocasta Hamilton at Scepter she's she's wonderful and she just she had a vision of what it was that she wanted Mm. she just knew straight away and she sent me various drawings and sketches saying so here's what we're thinking about do you like it and but they just they they created a wonderful package at Scepter and really knew what they were doing Mm. so I'm just I'm not very good at that stuff so I just (laughs) left it to them oh it's perfect it's beautiful it's lovely isn't it? so what's um what would your advice be to people who are listening and who you know they've they, they want to get their first novel out as well what's what's your advice for budding writers um I think the only advice I can give is that if anything else in the world can make you happy you should do that because it's really really hard and if there's anything else that you could possibly do then it's a much more sensible career option. Mm. But if you're sort of listening to this and you think, I don't care, all I want to do is write, there's nothing else in the world, then you should do it. But the chances are then you're a writer mm. and, and, and then you should write. What then is, do you find the most challenging thing is about writing for you? I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoy it so much. I just, I find it just one of the, 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 the greatest greatest pleasures of life I just I, I really enjoy it so and I sometimes I quite I quite enjoy the loneliness I think the the thing that can be hard I think it's probably to be around writers when writing mm. because the other worlds get so so real that one can kind of neglect the everyday world right. so I find sometimes <laughs> getting the balance between sort of living in this kind of 
dual existence i think it can be quite it can be quite irritating for one's friends mm. so. <laughs> and then what is the most rewarding thing for you personally i mean part of it is just i just enjoy writing i just enjoy the the act of sitting there and that buzz of when you've come up with an idea or there was a sticky part of the, the plot or a bit of the character that you said you needed something else and then you've come up with something and that just exhilarating rush of this is right, this is it and then going back, sitting down and just that feeling of kind of I've got my music on and I'm typing and that just excitement. But then, so so, so both the kind of the pure pleasure of just, of, of, of the act of writing mm. and then the feeling when somebody comes up to you or writes you a letter saying that they they've just loved what you've done just just just, just readers really mm. is just the most incredible feeling um i still feel quite bewildered by it because <laughs> i sort of gosh yes um you've read my book and <laughs> feels really odd. Well, I think you need to get used to that feeling because I have no <laughs> doubt that many people are waiting for the second one. So well, thank you. on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Natasha. Really appreciate well, it. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.